The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. What's up, danger? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. What's up, Lifehouse? Now, I'm going to call you out, and when I do, I want you to make some noise. And that, Now, if you're at campus and you're just watching, don't you dare think that because I'm not physically with you, I can't see you, all right? All of our pastors and team are watching, so when I call you guys out, make some noise, all right? So what's up, teachers? You got some teachers in the house? All right, what's up, Chambersburg campus? You guys better make some noise. What's up, students? We got your students in the house. All right. What's up, nurses? We have any nurses? Got a few nurses. What's up, cinemas? You guys better make some noise. All right. What's up, parents? You got any parents? All right. All right. I was going to keep going, but uh, I'm going to, hopefully you're going to quickly see where I'm going to go with all of this. If you're anything like me, there's this moment where you go, enough is enough. So this usually happens for me when I come home and like, I just realized I better not say this. <laughs> like it was really good written. And now I'm like, oh no. All right. So I come home and like, I, my boys drive me crazy because they have this need to take everything that's put away and take it out. And then they don't want to put it away. And I feel like it is my God-given fatherly responsibility to make my two-year-old learn how to put stuff away. And so I have physically picked him up and used his hands to put toys back. And I'm like, here's how you put the book away. Put it away. And then Daniel, he's like, like literally, this happened today. He, he's giving the, my two-year-old Matthew stuff to throw off the balcony. And then he doesn't take any responsibility for the fact that all of this stuff got thrown off. He's like, it wasn't me. No, no, it was you. You made the mess because you gave it to your brother to destroy. And at some moment, so as he said, I come home and I'm like, that's it. Like I've been home for 30 seconds and enough is enough. You've been, you've been not listening to your mother all day. You've been tearing the house apart all day. It's time for stuff to get put away. Enough's enough. Daddy's limit has been met within 30 seconds. Time to clean this house up. I'm going to get out the vacuum. We're going to get out some cleaner and we're going to clean this. All right, you get it? You see where I'm going? And some of you, I mean, you're a teacher. And it was the second day of school. And you were like, enough is enough. These kids, they don't want to learn. They don't care as much as I care. I've been preparing for months for this moment. I mean, I went through college. I went through grad school. I have had to bust my butt. And these little kids, man, they don't even care about learning. They don't know that this is about to destroy their life. If they don't pay attention right now. I mean, this is our class. Suck it up, buttercup, right? And you're ready to lose your mind because these kids aren't paying attention or you're a nurse and you want them to get better more than they want to get themselves better. And you're ready to like just, uh, maybe I'm overstating this. Maybe only parents feel this way. And maybe it's not even you. Maybe it's just me. But I feel like I'm hitting into a, a little nerve here where you've got a line. And I don't know how far your, li how far your line is, but I'll bet that on hard days, 
Your line's a little shorter. I mean, you get there a little quicker. Maybe, maybe somebody cut you off on your way to work, and man, your, your threshold of your, of your willingness to put up with issues got a lot shorter. And uh, maybe, maybe it was something that happened at work, and so when you get home, you're a little less tolerant with what you're willing to put up with with your kids. Or, you know, and I could go on and on about how all of us, we can get to the point where we're like, that's it. You don't care as much as I care. You don't work as hard as I work. You're not doing as much as I'm, you're not giving as much as I'm giving. And, and you're, you're at that point where you're like, enough is enough. And this gets even more complicated when we believe in our mind that they don't deserve it. Now, there are days, I hate to admit it, when in my home, I feel like my kids don't deserve it. And I'm like, that's it? Y'all didn't listen? You haven't been obedient to mommy and daddy. We were getting ready to take you guys out to eat. You don't deserve it. We're not going. That's it, right? Some of you all did this like you were getting ready to go on vacation. And the kids were acting crazy. You're like, that's it. We're not going. We're turning this car around, right? And like, you're not really going to do it. You're just saying it because you're just so upset and frustrated. And what you're really trying to say is you don't deserve what you're about to get. And some of you, maybe you do this at work, maybe it's in a classroom, and you get frustrated, and you're like, you don't deserve this. And we live in a culture. This, is, this one's tough, right? We have pitted groups of people. You don't look right. You don't vote right. You don't, you're not the right color. You're not the right political background. You don't have the right neighborhood, whatever it is. And suddenly we believe that entire groups of people, even generations of people, don't deserve to be treated well. This gets tough because it looks, looks in right at our heart. At what point have I said enough is enough and I'm not giving anymore? I'm not doing anymore. I'm done. I got nothing, less, nothing left to give and no more love to hand out. But if you jump back to where the early church started, there was something contagious something exciting, something so compelling that those on the outside looked in and they saw that the church did not have a line that was enough is enough. There was something so compelling about the early church that an outsider like Luke, a guy who was a doctor, highly educated, who was used to giving and giving and giving, he saw that the church just had more to give. And so he, he begins to investigate the story and life of Jesus. He meets people who knew Jesus personally, and through his investigation, he becomes convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. This outsider, this guy who is a Greek, a pagan, becomes an insider to Christianity and follows Jesus. But more than just following Jesus, he, he gets excited about the church. And so he writes two volumes. He writes the volume about the life of Jesus. It gets included in the Bible. It's called the Gospel of Luke. The second volume that he writes is called the Book of Acts. It's the story of the early church. And, and Luke is writing it as, from this lens of being an outsider that becomes an insider, meaning he's telling you what drew him in and then what got him excited about the early church. And so we've been going through this entire series, What's Up Danger, looking at what it was about the early church that made it dangerous. And I've talked to you about how Jesus made the church dangerous. Not in a bad way. Please don't twist what I'm saying here. The person of Jesus was so compelling that it transformed people's lives. But that's a dangerous step to begin to believe in Jesus. They're, they had a powerful spirit living in them that made them powerful and dangerous in a broken, messed up world. They had a, a prayer life 
that was dangerous. The community of the church was world changing. And we're going to land it with this. And it probably, if anything, I would share with you, this is, I could probably preach this sermon every single weekend and I could preach it the exact same way and we would still need to hear it again. All right, so that's kind of buckle up on this one because I'm landing it on a, on a high note, but on a, a strong, like, don't miss this note. So let's jump in. We're gonna jump into Acts chapter four, verse 32. They, they have been, the church has been mistreated. A few of their people were arrested and threatened. They got together and they prayed. And last week when I spoke, I spoke about the fact that prayer is not our last resort, but our first response. Prayer is powerful and it's bold and we can pray big things. And prayer is the greatest force we have on earth. It's our greatest duty as believers of Jesus Christ. It is the way that we converse with God. And it's the way we invite God into our every day. And after they prayed, they, um, they went out and they began to share God's love boldly with a world that was desperately in need. And then this is the next kind of passage, the next paragraph after that. All of the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, I don't know if you're like us in our home. When we get sick, my, my wife, she will sometimes Google all of the different symptoms and then try to self-diagnose. Curious at all of our campuses, how many of you are like self-diagnosers? You're like, you've, you know that you, you haven't gone to medical school, but Google is better than medical school. And so you, you're good at self-diagnosing. And what you've discovered is that no matter what you have, you have cancer. Uh, you, or, or you have some like, you're the only one in all the world that you're that one percenter, right? Like you're, you're the one that with the disease because you have all, you've, right? Because that's what Google does to you. That's what, what is that web? MD, right? Like, oh my goodness. It's like that, that probably is the worst website in the world. And because here's what happens, right? We self-diagnose, but here's what you're doing, right? You type in all the symptoms to figure out this um, unknown disease. So here's what I want to do with this passage we just read. What do the symptoms tell us about what's under the surface? Now, I'm not talking about a bad thing. How about this? If you're looking at a tree and you see apple, 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 you want me to keep going? Apple, 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 right? Here's what you're going to assume. This must be an apple tree. Orange, orange, orange. On, on our sabbatical, we got a chance to go places and we saw oranges growing. We were like, this is, a, we picked oranges off trees and ate them. We thought, this is amazing. We got to pick plums off of trees and eat them. We found one tree, they had like old rotten plums. And we were like, this is the best thing ever. We're like eating rotten plums off trees because it's so cool. Uh, we don't care. Man, we're from Maryland. We'll eat whatever we can get. Um, if it's growing, we're going to eat it. So we're like excited, right? But here's the thing, right? Plum, 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 plum must be a plum tree. This is what I see. This is what I see in the early church. And this is what Luke saw. Unity, generosity, they shared everything they had with those in need. They shared the love of Jesus Christ with people who did not know love. They, they ate together. They served together. They cared for each other. Hmm. Love, 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 love. Oh, 
There must be something about this fruit that indicates the root. There must be some quality about the early church that Luke is saying, I want more of that. I want to eat more of that fruit. I want to pick something off of that tree. In fact, I want to be part of that. And so what did, what did they What was it about this early church? Well, I'm gonna jump back to the words of Jesus who is telling them what it is about each follower of Jesus that should come out of us, meaning this is the fruit that should come out of the roots of following Jesus. Well, Jesus says it this way in John chapter 13. He goes, a new command I give you. By the way, this command came out of a moment, a really dirty moment. Jesus and his friends have been going down a they had been walking down the road. Remember, roads back then were not paved and it wasn't just cars and bikes. It was horses and donkeys and people wearing sandals. So imagine what got on your feet. So when they got to a home, dirt floors and carpets that were really expensive. So what they would do is there'd be a servant that would wash the feet. Well, no one washed the feet of the disciples when they arrived. So Jesus knelt down with a basin and washed his followers' feet. And when he's finished, he says this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so what is it about love? Because we, we throw out that word. I mean, you fall in love. You, you say, I love playing football, I love my, you know, I'm super pumped and I love going to that game. And um, I mean, I love, maybe you love Chinese or you love sushi or you love Italian or maybe you don't like any of that. You're, I've been picking on the gluten-free, so I better not say anything about them, but maybe you're vegan and you're like, I love my vegan food. I don't, I don't, I've never heard a vegan say that, by the way. I think that they just do it. Sorry, no offense, but I've never heard him like, this is the best Boca burger ever. But anyway, for everybody else, you love what you eat, right? You, you love your boyfriend, you love your girlfriend, Lauren, I, we fell in love and we still love each other 20 years of marriage later. But there's something, what do we mean when we say love? And what do we mean when we say the church should be filled with love and those that love Jesus should be driven by love. Well, here's what we mean. Here's the principle. It's this, love is selfless. I, believe it or not, it took me a long time to come up with this little statement. I kept adding words to it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm making this way too complicated. It's really this simple. Love is selfless. In fact, anything less than selfless is something less than love. So when you say love, I love you, what do you mean? Because from a Luke perspective, looking in at the early church that was following the command of Jesus, when they said, I love you, they didn't use words, they just were selfless. So when I say, I love you, do what it, does what it mean? is that I am willing to live selflessly for you. I'm willing to serve selflessly with you. I'm willing to give generously to you because when they loved, they loved selflessly. And, you know, so here, this is the, the craziest, most attractive, most wild and exotic love that exists on earth is a godly, selfless love. Now, some of you didn't know where I was going with that, so let me restate that now that you know where the sentence ends. The most attractive love, the most exotic love, the craziest, wildest, most passionate love will always be selfless love. 
And anything less than selfless love is something less than love. So why is it that we get to a point in life when we go enough is enough? Because you and I have a threshold on our ability to love selflessly. Why? Because you and I, whether there's a hole in our love or a hole in our selflessness, there is something broken about us that makes us selfish, which is the opposite of love. We serve ourselves. Even our passion in love is more about what we want and how we feel and what we get than true selfless love. And so we say we love someone, what we really mean is I love what I can get from you, which is selfish and not love. Why? Because at the core of who we are, there is a selfish sabotaging force called sin. It's a spiritual force that lives inside of every one of us that is corrupting our desires. It ruins us and it makes us selfish, but it's complicated because it's not, it's who we are, but it's not the way we want to be. It, an outside thing was put in us called sin but we were born with it and so we don't know anything different. And so we, we have desires that make us selfish. And as a result, we make decisions that are selfish and it leads toward a lifestyle of ruin because our selfishness hurts us and others around us and the end result is not just death, but eternal judgment because the consequence of a life of sin is forever judgment far from God. But the great news is that God was unwilling to leave us on a life course of selfishness driven by sin toward forever ruin. And so God did the most selfless thing by becoming one of us. God stepped into our world, took on our sin selfishness. He absorbed the judgment we deserve for our sin. When he died on the cross, he gave his life as the payment for our eternal death sentence so that when he died, he died once for all. But as you know, Jesus not only died, Jesus rose, from again, by, rose again from the dead. And by the way, if you didn't know that, surprise, good news. Jesus not only died for you, but he rose again from the dead, victorious over sin, over death, and over eternal judgment. So that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sin and given new life. And when you receive new life, God's spirit enters into your spirit. Check this out. This is important. God's spirit, which is invisible and eternal, comes and enters into your spirit, which is eternal and invisible. And with his spirit, he brings love. Why does he bring love? Not because God offers love, but because God is love. Uh, in, the, in the Bible, you read a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome where he says this, God demonstrated his love in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. The way God demonstrated love was that he gave his one and only son in sacrificial death for people that were far from him. God was selfless and he invites us to believe in him. And when we believe in him, we are not only forgiven and that selfishness in us begins to transform by God's spirit into selflessness. And we, that's not possible on your own. Please don't hear this message and think, okay, I have to try really hard to be selfless. No, you can't. It's either in you or it's not. 
The only way you get it in you is to believe in Jesus by faith and let his love come into your heart and, and wash out the selfishness so that his selfless love transforms you and me. It has to transform our hearts. It has to transform our marriages, our homes, our parenting, our classrooms, our workplace. It has to transform the church. So what does it look like when people begin to love the way God loves? We love selflessly. Okay, so what are the ways we love selflessly? Meaning, the, you know, the rubber's got to hit the road. So what does this look like tomorrow? Here it is. Selfless love gives extravagantly. Now, all of you, for a moment, just grab your wallet, cover it up, hide it, put away your purse. If you have, if you, have you, know, um, a, you know, that wallet app on your phone, you can lock it down for a minute. This is not going to be about me trying to get you to give money. All right? But I'll bet by the end of it, you're going to be like, I have to give! <laughs> Here's the deal, right? So I made a statement. I made this statement, right? Like, God gave. He didn't give money. He gave everything. He gave himself. Love is expensive. Now, we can illustrate this, right? I remember when Laura and I started dating, and love is expensive. (laughs) Now, Laura didn't demand it, but she didn't have to. I wanted to. And there was a point when I was a poor college student and I didn't have anything left to give. And so then Laura had to take me on a date. I remember it. One of the more humbling moments when Laura, and we literally went out and got a bagel. Like we didn't have much. And so, you know, these are desperate moments. But I mean, the, my, our, the engagement ring I got her, like I literally worked all summer to save up money for college. And then an engagement ring. And that was all, I, I didn't just give, you know, a ring. I gave everything I had. Right, because love is expensive, but let's go beyond romantic, right? Like God loved us and gave his only son for the rescue of mankind. When you begin to get filled with selfless love, you will be driven to give, not because they're asking for it, but because you want to give. You want to lavish on others the generosity of what God has poured into you because God has been generous to us. We want to be generous to others. And so we give extravagant. You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Giving is the greatest expression of love. And here's what will happen. Love gives and gives and gives. And when it hurts, it gives some more. You want to know whether you're loving or are you giving? extravagantly, not when it's convenient, not when it's safe and comfortable, but when it hurts the most. And we're talking about a church, right? So when we read that, they gave and shared their resources to others in need. They're living in abject poverty. This is a report about what in modern times would be a third world country. So you're talking about a glimpse into the early church in a world where they are heavily oppressed. The Roman Empire is stripping their resources, is is literally robbing them blind, is is bankrupting their businesses, is, is stealing their crops. It's taxing them to death. This is the era of Robin, you know, like not of Robin Hood, but a concept like Robin Hood, right? Where the government of that time, the, the big bad Roman Empire is literally just leaving them broken. And in that context, Luke says that the church gave and gave and gave to each other and those in need. So don't, don't limit yourself by like, well, I just don't have it. No, no, no. The, they didn't have it. And they gave to anyone 
in need. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to, you know, like make you feel guilty. Here's what I know. What are we afraid to lose? Most of us, when we're holding back from giving, it's because I'm thinking to myself, well, if I give it, I don't have it. And I might need it. And if I give it, do you really deserve it? But in the early church, they understood that everything they had was from God and therefore for God. And as a result, they loosened their grip because they knew they had nothing to lose. Let me say this really clearly. You have nothing to lose. What could you lose? If everything you give, God accounts for, and everything you give produces eternal rewards, then you lose nothing when you give. In fact, there is nothing you can give that will make you less. There is nothing you can give that will ever make the riches of God any less on your account. Everything you give, God will lavish back on you, if not in this life, in the life to come. So let's give extravagantly, but let's not stop there. If we jump to the next chapter, we see kind of the expression of love being lived out. Here we go. As a result, meaning the way they were living, here's what happened. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Could you imagine? That people knew that we had something so powerful that they, that they emptied the hospitals and laid them along our steps, laid them along the sidewalks on the way to Life House. They sat along the roads so that if our cars drove by, someone might get something they need. They might get a touch from God. They might get a healing from heaven. They might receive the love that they desperately need. And people would be willing to go out of their way to get what we have because we have something only the church has because only the church has access to the love of God. What's the point here? Selfless love gets out and gets messy. So if I love in a selfless way, I'm gonna get out and I'm gonna get messy, meaning I have to get out of my comfort zone I have to step beyond what's safe. I have to be able to get involved and get out into the places that are uncomfortable, which means this, right? I have to be willing to talk to people that I don't always feel comfortable talking to. You've got to be willing to talk to some strangers, unless you're a child. Children don't talk to strangers. But if you're not a kid and you don't have a mom who's going to correct you for doing that, you should be talking to strangers. You should know your neighbors by name you should probably invite them in your home. You should see people in your life as your neighbor. Whoever God puts around you is given to you as a neighbor and a friend. And so you, you and I have got to be willing to step out of our comfort zone, get out of our normal routine. That means every once in a while, we've got to be willing to stop and slow down and introduce ourselves to somebody. Or if we see somebody hurting, recognize their pain and talk to them, right? Learn their name, learn their story, take a moment and pray for someone, even if it feels awkward. But don't just get out and don't just go beyond your comfort zone. You actually have to do something and that's gonna feel messy. What do I, what do I mean by this? Love gets messy and looks messy. So the question is, who are you trying to impress? Most of us don't get messy and look messy because we're trying to impress people who don't think messy is very impressive. And so what we do is we keep a comfortable, safe, 
um, sphere around our world to impress people that we don't even like. But if we learn that God loves us and he was willing to get messy in our lives, he was willing to get messy in our sin and our sickness and our suffering, he was willing to get messy enough to be nailed to a cross and willing to be stripped and beaten and bruised on our behalf, then just maybe the model of Jesus is that we've got to get a little bit messy and we've got to take a few beatings and we've got to be willing to let ourselves be a little bit broken on behalf of those that are hurting. Now, I don't mean that you and I need to be crucified the way Jesus was. Was. We're not going to put ourselves in the place of the Messiah. But Jesus did say we crucify our flesh daily, right? We put aside our agendas. We put aside our ego. We put aside our self-interest to selflessly love others. We give up our life to serve others. And that's going to look and feel messy. And so think about it. If you have no one to impress, it means you have nothing to prove. Imagine how differently you would love if you had nothing to prove. You didn't care what anyone thought of you except God alone. I want to land it with this because I really think this is a powerful thought. I'm going to jump into the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, a church that had a pretty messy view of love kind of a perverted view of love. Their view of love was not selfless, it was selfish. And the apostle Paul was writing to the church because that selfishness got into and was corrupting the church. And so he's writing to them and he wants to write about the right way to live, the, the mature way to be a Jesus follower. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he lists all of the gifts of the spirit. Here is the, the way that God wants to work powerfully through your life. He'll give you faith. He'll give you words when you don't know how to speak. He'll give you understanding of things that you shouldn't understand. He'll give you information that you shouldn't know. And then the apostle Paul says this, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. There's something greater than having the power of God working through your life. What? There's something greater than faith. There's something greater than the gifts of healing. There's something greater than generosity. There's something greater than having the words of tongues and, and wisdom and knowledge and all of that. Seek greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. I want that. Whatever the most excellent way is, give it to me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all, of my, all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on to say love is... Love is patient, love is kind. And he lists all the qualities and various characteristics of love. And there's a simple point to this. Selfless love is true maturity. We know that a living thing is mature when it can feed itself, protect itself, and multiply itself, right? This is basic biology. And often we look at someone who is mature, they hit puberty, and I'm not gonna go any further, poor parents here, uh, especially for next gen weekend, but very simply, right? Like we can often think, well, if you could take care of yourself and you can protect yourself and you can have babies, you're mature, right? Uh, right? So we know as, as adults that that's not what human maturity means. No, human maturity means that you know how to hold your tongue, right? Some of y'all, you're, you're you're in the second half of your life and you're still learning to be mature. All right, so you're nodding your heads. 
Um, you, you know how to hold your tongue. You know how to manage your impulses. You don't just do everything you feel like doing. You don't say everything you feel like saying. You don't buy everything you want to buy, right? Maturity means you know how to constrain and restrain those urges. And maturity means you take responsibility for your actions, right? That, those are some, some basic signs of maturity. In, when we follow Jesus, the most fundamental sign of maturity is that we love. Let me be very clear. You, you can have all the gifts of the Spirit and have no maturity. You can, be, you can have gone to church your whole life and not be mature as a Jesus follower. The number one, meaning if there's anything about your life that shows that you are following Jesus, that you are growing in your faith, is are you becoming more selfless in your love? So let me, let me land it this way. Selfless love means you are quick to forgive and not hold grudges. Selfless love means you give generously without ever wanting credit for it. Selfless love means you serve sacrificially again without looking for attention for that sacrificial serving, only wanting to build others up and tear no one down. It means that you take a blow graciously. You receive persecution without anger and revenge. It means that you understand that you have a responsibility as a Jesus follower to give and give and give, and when it hurts, you give more. It means that your love quotient is growing in selflessness, where it is not about your ego, your name, your fame, but about the name, fame of Jesus Christ alone, that people can see right through your love to Jesus. That's what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ. And so very simply, there are some of you that you are craving that kind of love. You've been corrupted by selfishness. Other selfishness has hurt you. And right now you just, I need selfless love from God. And the only thing you can do is just receive it. You just pray and Jesus, forgive me. Give me new life through faith in Jesus Christ at each of our campuses. Maybe that's your first prayer is to receive that love from God. Receive forgiveness, receive his goodness, receive his spirit in your life. But for every individual that believes in Jesus right now, then your next step must be. This is one of the rare times. I'm not inviting you to. I'm not saying think about it. I am saying if you believe in Jesus, then you must ask the question, what one step can I take in selfless love? Because that is the only mandate of every Jesus follower. How can I love more selflessly? So I wanna do is I wanna just pray over you. Would, would you allow me to do that right now? Again, at each of our campuses, maybe just for a moment, I wanna just pray over you right now. Jesus, thank you. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. In fact, very much the opposite. What we deserved was punishment. We earned shame and guilt. We deserve judgment. But Jesus, you came to us and you died for us and you gave your life to give us life. And we receive that right now. But we know that what you give, you fill. It fills us so that it spills out of us. So what fills, spills right now in Jesus' name. Would you make us selfless in our love? Some of us, we need more selflessness in our marriage. We need more selflessness in our parenting, more selflessness in our classrooms, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our church, in our city. God, may we be the ambassadors of selfless love, a transformational, world-changing love. In Jesus' name, amen. 
thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.